I don't know if you watched the American Idol editions years ago. I don't know if that show's still on TV or not. But I would occasionally watch when it was the first people coming and trying to go to Chicago or New York or wherever. And someone would sing, and they were horrible. They were tone deaf. And then Simon or one of the other judges would just say, Stop, stop. That's the worst thing I've ever heard. And then they would ask the individual, like, why did you think that you would come and audition for this? Well, my mama says I'm a really good singer, or my papa says that I'm a really good singer. And, and you start to think, like mama or papa should have confronted their child at some point before allowing them to go on national television and embarrass themselves. Confronting someone with the truth in their life, it's not an easy thing to do. And over the years, I've had mothers come to me and they say things like, like my son grew up in the church and since he moved away from home, he has moved in with his girlfriend and they're coming to visit and I know they'll want to sleep together when they're here, but if I make them sleep in separate rooms, they're just going to go back and sleep any way that they want when they're back home again. So is it really worth it? I want his girlfriend to like me. I want her to think that I'm not a judgmental type of person. And then what would you do? It's always that, what would I do? So what would you do if you found out that a friend of yours was having an affair with someone at the office? What would you do if you found that your your boss was fixing the books What would you do if your husband isn't spiritually leading the family? What would you do if a life group member, a friend of yours, is gossiping all the time? Or what would you do if your roommate's drinking problem is spiraling out of control? Or what would you do if you found pornography on your son's computer? In confronting someone... It tends to make us pretty nervous. Like our stomach churns, our blood pressure goes up, and we think, you know, if if I say something to him, like he'll never talk to me again. Or if I talk to my husband about my disappointment with our marriage, he'll say, nothing I ever do is good enough for you. Or if I talk to my mom and my dad about this anger that I'm carrying around with me, then things will just become more tense between us. If I ask my boss if what he's doing is unethical, I'll lose my job. If I say something to my wife about her constant complaining, I'll never hear the end of it. If I confront my friend, then my friend will just avoid me. So please turn to 1 Samuel chapter 15 in your Bibles or your electronic device Because in this chapter, we see Samuel going to confront the king of Israel. And this is Saul. He's the most powerful man in that whole nation. And he's going to confront him regarding his disobedience to God. And confronting is never easy, but it's a required task. So our story begins in verse 2 with a very clear command given to Saul by God. This is what the Lord All-Powerful says. When the Israelites came out of Egypt, the Amalekites tried to stop them from going to Canaan. So I will punish them. 
Now go, attack the Amalekites and destroy everything they own as an offering to the Lord. Don't let anything live. Put to death men and women, children and babies, cattle and sheep, camels and donkeys. So he's to go and attack and destroy the Amalekites, even killing their livestock and their animals. And if you read through the chapter, you'll see that this is mentioned seven times. The instructions are very clear. Saul understands exactly what he's to do. But I want to give you an idea of why God has it out for these Amalekites. Because about 400 years prior to this, Moses went to Egypt and he led the nation of Israel out of slavery in Egypt. And you've got a couple of million Israelites wandering around in the wilderness, and the Amalekites would attack them for no reason. They'd come up from behind, and they'd kill those who were lagging behind in the journey. And we read all about that in Exodus 17. But in Deuteronomy 25, we get a clue about God's feelings regarding those attacks on his people. Never forget what the Amalekites did to you as you came from Egypt. They attacked at you when you were exhausted and weary, and they struck down those who were straggling behind. They had no fear of God. Therefore, the Lord your God has given you rest from all your enemies in the land that he is giving you as a special possession. You must destroy the Amalekites and erase their memory from under heaven. Never forget this. So God gives this assignment to Saul, and the assignment is very clear. But then the first two words of the the ninth verse there, but Saul. It was Saul do this, but Saul, he decides he's going to do something else. And, And that's rebellion. When God says, this is what I expect of you, this is what I want your life to look like, this is what I want from you, and we do something else, that's, that's rebellion. So Saul, he kind of goes partway with his obedience. He attacks the Amalekites, but he spares Agag the king, and then he also brings the best of the cattle and the sheep back with him. And the first thing I want you to really understand from this story is that Saul deliberately disobeys. That's important to note, because when it comes to confronting someone, there's a difference between accidental or ignorant disobedience and deliberate disobedience. So here, this is something really good. Like, ignorant rebellion needs to be exposed in light of God's truth. Deliberate rebellion needs to be confronted. So ignorant rebellion... We expose God's truth to those people, but deliberate rebellion needs to be confronted. So when a Christian knows the word of God and a Christian says, I'm going to live by those standards, but then they're living with this pattern of disobedience or rebellion, then it it needs to be confronted. But when a non-Christian who hasn't signed up for all of this lives by a standard of disobedience to God, we shouldn't be surprised. Like, we shouldn't be surprised that an unbeliever acts like an unbeliever. Like, what else would they do? Like, I played a lot of hockey in my younger days. Actually, I didn't quit till I was about 45. And I played on the University of Prince Edward Island hockey team. 
And these guys were good players, but their lifestyles were horrible. And, and at first I was thinking, you know, I'm going to try and correct everything here. But they weren't Christians. Like to tell them, you know, smoking what you're smoking there, that's a sin. What's a sin? Like getting <laughs> drunk or like well, then using the Lord's name in vain and the stories that they told in the dressing room. So I, I just had a silent witness with them and through the course of the year, things got quite a bit better. But you can't confront a non-Christian about their behavior because they don't know any different. But you confront a Christian about their error but convince a non-Christian of the truth. Now, that doesn't mean we never confront a non-Christian. Sometimes our relationship with a person means that we have to speak up because we can see a destructive behavior taking place in their lives. But they, most of the time, the best way to get them to change isn't by confronting their behavior, it's by challenging their beliefs. If they haven't signed up to live by certain standards, it's highly unlikely that they're going to change by confronting them about violating those standards. So you need to, first of all, address their beliefs. Just imagine there's a group here in the city, and they believe it's wrong to listen to country western music and to eat at restaurants that serve buffets. And they think that this will shorten your life by 15 to 20 years. Now, they really care about other people, so they pick it in front of buffet restaurants. And they put out advertisements saying how evil country western music is. And they're just going to be kind of harmless. They're going to alienate themselves from everybody else. And at best, people will think they're weird. But if they just get into a conversation with you and start to talk to you about how these activities will shorten your lifespan... And eventually, you know what I'd do? I would believe them. I would adopt the same beliefs if they could convince me that they were true. Until we convince people that their belief system needs to change, it's highly unlikely that they're going to be concerned about their behavior. But when a Christian deliberately sins, it's our job to convict them of their error, to confront them. But when a non-Christian is caught up in a sin, it's our job to convince them of the truth. Now, there's a good example of this in 1 Corinthians 5.11. I'm writing to tell you that you must not associate with those who, and, not, and notice, call themselves believers in Christ, who sin sexually or are greedy or worship idols or abuse others with words or get drunk or cheat people. Do not even eat with people like that. So he isn't telling us not to have anything to do with the people outside of the church. He's telling us if there's someone in the church and they're saying, I'm committed to Christ, my life is with Christ, and then they're living in an open rebellion, then he's saying don't have anything to do with them. It's not our business to judge those outside the church and then Paul goes on to say that it is part of our job as brothers and sisters in Christ to actually keep one another accountable. In the 13th verse, he says, God will judge those outside the church. That's not our role. So Saul, the king of God's people, clearly understands that he's to be obeying God and he disobeys. So now we pick up in verse 10. Verse 10. 
Then the Lord spoke his word to Samuel. I am sorry I made Saul king because he has stopped following me and has not obeyed my commands. Samuel was upset and he cried out to the Lord all night long. Now why was Samuel troubled? It's most likely because Samuel knows that he's going to be the one that's going to have to go to Saul and pass on this message. It's like when something happens around here. I know it's going to be me going to confront. Once in a while I say, James, our associate pastor, you get over there. You, you, you confront this one. Like It doesn't have to be me all the time. But he knows that God isn't happy with Saul, and he knows that he is going to have to confront. So he's troubled. And God's not happy with Saul. And guess what, Samuel? You're the one that's going to tell him that I'm not happy with him. So he's troubled all night long. He can't get any sleep. And there's a simple truth there because confrontation is never easy. You can watch some of those candid camera shows on TV. And one time I saw this man walk into a restaurant and he would just sit down beside people and start eating their french fries. And he would do that one after another, and nobody ever said anything to him. You could see this awful look on their faces, but nobody said anything because they didn't want to confront. Because confronting isn't a fun thing to do. Samuel's not looking forward to going and confronting the king of Israel. Now, what are some of the things that we do instead of confronting? First of all, we pretend that everything is okay. And maybe you're thinking of someone right now. Like, is there a situation that you're, you're just kind of pretending you don't know about, but you do? And it's at least worth going to the person and saying, look, could I ask you about this? It's prob- if you're thinking that, it's probably time that you did something. And then we make excuses for the person. We rationalize their behavior. Well, my son, like he, he's just like any other young man. Like he'll come around. Like my, my daughter, she, she doesn't mean to be disrespectful. It's just her sense of humor. Or my buddy's wife, you know, she's not meeting his needs at home. Like what's he supposed to do? Or my husband, he's under a lot of stress at work right now. And we make excuses for them because we're afraid. And maybe our fear is greater than our love. And then another thing we do is leave it to someone more qualified, like pastors. But, and there's a sense in which this is legitimate, because last week we talked about Samuel and talked about the moral life that he lived, the sense of character that he had. So he had the right to speak into Saul's life. In Matthew 7, Jesus warned us to make sure that before we go to confront someone about the rebellion in their lives, that we've got our own lives straight. He says to examine yourself. He doesn't say, don't do it. He just says, examine yourself first, and then go and reach out to that other person. Because so many times we'll see people go and confront someone, and they've got the very same issue going on in their lives. So their confrontation carries no weight whatsoever. So then he goes on and says this way. He says, don't judge others or you will be judged. And when he tells us that, he isn't saying, just ignore the sin. 
And he's not saying don't pay any attention to that destructive behavior that your friend is involved in or just let everyone do what they want. What he's saying is don't judge. Like don't hypocritically judge. Don't talk to them unless you've examined yourself first. And then the fourth thing we do is we just kind of put it off. Do you do this sometimes? You know... You want to talk to them, and you say, well, I'll talk to them later. And we plan on talking to them, and it doesn't feel right. And then we think, well, we'll just wait for it to come up casually in the conversation. And then eventually, it just never happens. I was having lunch with somebody, and we had finished eating, and the guy had food on his chin. And I didn't say anything right away, but after a while, I'm just kind of staring at that food, and then, after a while, you think, well, I should say something, but if you speak up now, they're going to say, why didn't you tell me this before? So you end up leaving the guy with stuff on his chin, going out the door. But we do that so many times in our lives, don't we? We put the confrontation off, and it becomes more and more difficult. And Samuel understands this. So now we're going to take uh, ourselves through the next 12 verses here. So beginning in verse 12. Early the next morning, so Samuel has received this message from God late at night, and now he's up all night long. He can't sleep. He's praying. But Samuel got up and went to meet Saul. But the people told Samuel, Saul has gone to Carmel, where he has put up a monument in his own honor. And now he has gone down to Gilgal. And when Samuel came to Saul. So Saul sees Samuel coming, and he knows he's been busted. Because listen to the first words out of Saul's mouth, and this, this is great. Saul said, may the Lord bless you. I have obeyed the Lord's commands. See, that's a sign of a guilty conscience. The Lord bless you. Like, I've been obedient to everything that the Lord asked me to do. And then uh, Samuel said, well, if you destroyed everything, then why do I hear cattle mooing and sheep bleeding? And then what does Saul do? Like, he immediately begins to justify himself. Saul answered, The soldiers took me, excuse me, took them from the Amalekites. They saved the best sheep and cattle to offer as sacrifices to the Lord your God. But then he brings himself back into this. And he says, We destroyed all the other animals. And Saul, immediately upon being confronted, he blames the soldiers. And then he says, hey, you know, we were really doing this out of a love for God. But Samuel's not buying this story. So in verse 16, Samuel said to Saul, stop. Like, let me tell you what the Lord said to me last night. And Saul answered, tell me. And Samuel said, once you didn't think much of yourself, but now you have become the leader of the tribes of Israel. The Lord appointed you to be king over Israel, and he sent you on a mission. And he said, go and destroy those evil people, the Amalekites. Make war on them until all of them are dead. Why didn't you obey the Lord? Why did you take the best things? Why did you do what the Lord said was wrong? And then Saul defends himself here in verse 20. Saul said, but I did obey the Lord. I did what the Lord told me to do. I destroyed all the Amalekites, and I brought Agag their, back Agag, their king. 
The soldiers took the best sheep and cattle to sacrifice to the Lord your God at Gilgal. At this point, it could have been very easy for Samuel just to accept Saul's explanation here. I've done my job. I've come here to confront him. I've done what you told me to do. It would have been so easy to just accept that and then just go back home again. But Samuel, he's going to go all the way with this. So verses 22 and 23. But Samuel answered, What pleases the Lord more, burnt offerings and sacrifices or obedience to his voice? It is better to obey than to sacrifice. It is better to listen to God than to offer the fat of sheep. Disobedience is as bad as the sin of sorcery. Pride is as bad as the sin of worshiping idols. You have rejected the Lord's command, and now he rejects you as king. So he talks to Saul, first of all, about his behavior, and now he says, okay, there are going to be some consequences. And the first thing Samuel does, he calls for Agag, the king of the Amalekites, to be brought in. And Agag, as he's coming in, thinks, oh, I finally bought a break here. You know, he sees you know, good things about to happen. He's been called in by the religious leader to speak to him. And this is what Samuel says. He said, your sword made other mothers lose their children. Now your mother will have no children. And Samuel had him put to death right there. Like, aren't you excited about confronting someone? Like, doesn't this story just fire you up to go and have tough conversations? No, it, it, it doesn't at all. There's nothing about this story that motivates me to want to do this. And perhaps that's why it's best to look at this one, because it gives us some realistic expectations. What does Saul do when he's confronted? He denies it. He's defensive. And then Samuel has to clean up his mess. And it may go that way for you. So I'm not saying that this is easy. It's not. But I just want to close with a few things that we can do to help us confront someone in love. And first of all, check your motivation. We read that Samuel was troubled about this confrontation. He mourned for Saul. And you know what? Like that, that's appropriate because confrontation shouldn't be something that you enjoy, something that you look forward to. Like One man had a next-door neighbor with a dog that would bark in the middle of the night, and it was just driving him insane. So finally, one night, the dog was barking, he phones his neighbor, and he starts barking as loud as he can into the phone. That was his way of confronting. Like, that's not confronting in love. There are all kinds of wrong motives to confront someone. Maybe you confront someone because you're jealous of them, or, or maybe it's because they do things differently than you do, or you just don't like something about them. Maybe pointing out people's mistakes makes you feel spiritually superior. But remember this, confrontation isn't about you. It's not about you getting something off your chest. And confrontation is never anonymous. If there are some things about another person that rub you the wrong way, they don't have the same tastes or opinions that you do, just accept them. It's not worth confronting. Ephesians 4. No, speaking the truth in love, 
we will grow up in every way into Christ who is the head. So when you go confront someone, your objective isn't to hurt them, it's to help. And you don't go there out of angerness or bitterness. You go there because you care about them. The books of First and Second Corinthians are two books written by the Apostle Paul to the church that he started there. And it seemed like these poor people just couldn't get anything right because every chapter was dealing with some kind of problem. Like Paul's confronting them over and over again. You've got to do this better. You need help on this. Pay attention to this. But Samuel is motivated to confront out of love. And that's what exactly we see here with the Apostle Paul. So I just wanted to use 2 Corinthians 7, verse 8, just to see his motivation. And this is in the message paraphrase. I know I distressed you greatly with my letter, although I felt awful at the time. I don't feel at all bad now that I see how it turned out. The letter upset you, but only for a while, and you were jarred into turning things around. You let your distress bring you to God, and that's what I was hoping for in the first place when I wrote the letter. So you can hear his motive. Like he goes to them and tells them the truth, and he does this out of a spirit of love for them. And then the second thing Samuel did was he planned out what he was going to say. And I encourage you to do that. Like he cried out to God all night long so he would have prepared what he was going to say to King Saul that next morning. He didn't enter into that lightly. He prays and he asks God for wisdom. Uh, Proverbs 25, verse 11, I like. The right word spoken at the right time is as beautiful as gold apples in a silver bowl. So plan out what you're going to say because you can't take it back. Has this ever happened to you? You receive a strongly worded email confronting you over an issue that the other person thought was really important, but a few minutes later you get another email from them. Oh, don't read that other email. And well, you can't do that. You can't take it back. So you need to think through what you're going to say, or you might go into that conversation being sarcastic. It might be accusatory and just starts off in the wrong foot altogether. But did you notice what Samuel did? He just makes some observations. Is that cattle I hear mooing in the background? Like he, he didn't go inoffensively because Saul would have responded defensively. And if you go in with anger, people will become angry. So the Bible says a soft answer turns away wrath. So go in there, do your best to encourage, talk about positive things that you appreciate about the in, that individual, and affirm your love for them and your relationship with them. Now, our story doesn't have a happy ending, and that's sometimes true with confrontation. So verse 35 of 1 Samuel 15, And Samuel never saw Saul again the rest of his life, but he was sad for Saul, and the Lord was very sorry he had made Saul king of Israel. I guess this is what makes it so difficult, because we don't know how it's going to end up. We don't know if that person... It will respond in a good way or in a bad way when they confront them. I hope you've given some people permission to be a Samuel in your life, 
to be a truth teller for you. Because most people don't have anyone like that. And John Ortberg said the reason we don't have truth tellers in our life is the same reason we don't step on the scales in the bathroom. We're afraid of what we're going to see. But most of the people that you have in your life, they love you a lot. And they're going to be inspired by this message here this morning. And they're going to go home. And they're going to talk to you this week. And some of you are even going to receive a phone call before you go to bed tonight. Will you receive that truth with a humble spirit? Or will you act defensively? Will you have the courage not to be defensive, but to listen? And whether it's right or wrong, will you be able to thank them that they really care about you enough and that they love you enough that they would do that hard thing and approach you about this thing in your life? Maybe this is what is keeping you from responding to the invitation to make Christ your Lord and Savior. You've been confronted with the truth of what God's will is for your life. And that means that you have to say, the way I've been doing things on my own just isn't working. I need to repent of the way I'm living. So would you be humble enough to accept his forgiveness into your life and to accept his standards for your life? And if you need to talk to someone about that, like please talk to James or myself or anyone else on our staff and we will guide you in the right direction.